0: So this morning I, I woke up and I had it. I had everything written, but I was like, to me, just not feeling as confident with it. But now going throughout the day, you know how sometimes that starts? You start and you feel a little bit different and you go through the day and you start feeling better about it. And then just singing right now too, that definitely I have confidence from the Holy Spirit. And so I'm excited about. So this is the book. There's two different books. There's one that's, and I'm going to talk about this in the message too, Once for the youth and once for the adults, and it's it's apologetics, pretty much. So apologetics is like defending your faith, and so that's what we're going to be talking about today. So the question that you can see on the screen is, aren't we better off without religion? Or in the youth version, it says, how can I live my best life now? And so, these are the questions that somebody might ask you. Like, hey, aren't we better off with the religion? And so, this is what I'm going to talk about. This is all biblical of ways that you can answer that. And what's cool is the way that God has designed things. So, how many of you would say that you've had questions about Christianity? I think that would probably be everyone in this room. I would, I remember having questions. You know, for my parents, even when I was itty bitty and I was laying down in the lower bunk bed at at our first home, or I guess the second home, but just sitting there picking my nose and then had my little booger wall, you know, on the side. So that's gonna be my second question. How many of y'all had booger walls? Like you're sitting there laying down, there's one dude right there that's honest. <laughs> And so that's that's really where I would do my deep thinking. I'd be contemplating, you know, things about God. And I, I was probably like five years old. I don't, maybe younger than that. We'll, we'll just say I was five. Maybe older than that. I don't know. Yeah, twenty-two. And then so my parents would wake up in the morning. They wake me up and they'd be like. Did you pick your nose throughout the night? And I'm like, no way. That wasn't me, you know. And then you look over next to the sheetrock, and you got this big old grease spot. And it's like, that was, that was clearly me. But uh, so what I wanted to say is I contemplated things at a very young age. So we're going to do something a little different. I've talked to you all about the books that we're going over. And so that's what we're going to go over, these questions out of that book. And the, the youth version is 10 questions every teen should ask and answer about Christianity. The adult version is called, co- is called confronting Christianity, the 12 hardest questions for the world's largest religion. So in this book, rather than, you know, protecting kids from di- divergent ideas or urging them to affirm that all beliefs are equal, the author wants to equip y'all and to have real conversations. And that's, that's our job too. And whenever you talk to somebody who thinks differently than you, for you to listen and to listen well, but the things that we believe, the truth, will stand up to scrutiny. And so that's what we're going to go over. The questions that we'll cover and put them on the screen is, aren't we better off without religion? Doesn't Christianity crush diversity? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Doesn't religion cause violence? How can you take the Bible literally? How could a loving God allow so much suffering? Doesn't Christianity denigrate women? Isn't Christianity homophobic? And then how can you say that there's only one faith? So after this, you, you're going to be able to answer all these questions. And those are the nine questions out of the book that we thought were most important. So right now, I just want you to pick, have you, or picture yourself listening well. Take yourself back to where that spot was, wherever you were contemplating, you know, for me, it was on that bottom bunk. So the adult version asks the question, Aren't we better off without religion? The youth version version says, How can I live my best life now? And I've I found myself asking that question more than the other. How can I live my best life now? And I, you know, I think that's still what I'm on a search for every day. And the difference of today and the days of my youth is I look to find my best life in different areas, or I really try to focus on the right areas. I realize the importance of my decisions, and I realize that me saying yes to one thing could be saying no to another. And even when you're focused on what's most important, you can still become distracted. And the culture is, and it was, very distracting for me when I was youth and young adult. And that's what I was really shooting for. You know, that was an overarching theme of my decisions was how could I live my best life now? And my answer to that was blending into the culture of my school. That's how I'd answer that. And the truth is, even when I did that in junior high, high school, and then even part of my college, there was a deeper longing inside of me. And so this has become a commonplace for a lot of Christians We've, but we've become entrenched into our culture, which has led a lot of, a lot of Christians to lose touch with their heritage. This question right here, did you know that Christians invented universities and they founded most of the world's top schools to glorify God? That was the, that was the intent of those universities. And yet studying is seen as a threat, you know, something that opposes the faith. Christians also invented science, yet some see science as something that will oppose Christianity. And this is the part of Christianity that we should know. I mean, it's not the only part, but we should embrace that. These are just a few things that we're going to cover over the semester, and its intent is to give us a clear perspective of how beneficial Christianity is for us and being in a relationship with God, how beneficial that is. When we walk in the truth of the way that God designed things, our lives are healthier, fulfilling, and always striving to what he wants, which is far better than what we could ever imagine. And that means living our best life together now. And that doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. There's going to be a lot of hard times, and the Bible tells us that. But he also promised that following him was going to be the way to really live. He's He said, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. That's John 10.10. So let's see how we can live our best life now. The first one is evidence number one. People who go to church are happier and healthier. So in 2016, this Harvard School of Public Health professor, his name was Tyler Vanderwill, and he paired up with this journalist. They wrote a USA Today open entitled, Religion May Be a Miracle Drug. So this piece begins, if one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on that? And they'd place a lot on that. And research suggests that those who regularly attend services are more optimistic, they have lower rates of depression, are less likely to commit suicide, they have a greater purpose in life, and are more self-controlled. So what makes religious participation so powerful? Part of the answer is relationships. So if you go to church, you're most likely going to form relationships, or at least that would be my hope. The director of the Harvard Study of Adult Development, so this is a 75-year-old study on well-being, he summarized his his findings on a 75-year-old study. He said that good relationships keep us happier and healthier, period. That was his findings. And throughout the study, the subjects thought that it would be fame, wealth, high achievement that would bring them happiness. But the happiest and healthy pe- people were actually those that prioritize their family, relationships with friends and community. So our society will tell you just the opposite, you know, by prioritizing the choice over commitment. We resist being tied down because we, we fear missing out on something. And in doing so, we miss out on the things that matter the most. And I'm most happy when I commit to decisions that are good for me and they're good for others. And if I keep questioning something else that is out there instead of appreciating what God has given me or a God-given moment, I will be ungrateful or unhappy and I wanted to give you all an example. This was just two weeks ago. So it was a Sunday night. Two weeks ago, y'all remember when it rained, like it downpoured? Yeah. And so I mowed that afternoon, and I was just was in, in anticipation for that rain. I was like, dude, this is going to be awesome. And I didn't know if it was going to happen or not. But I was making tostadas, which I'm not much of a cook, but I did make some tostadas. And so I just got done. I was frying them in the pan. And it started pouring, and I was like, oh, yeah, it's time to go. So I got Conley and Bodie, and I was like, let's go outside. I was like, I'll I'll finish dinner later. And so they immediately just go out into the rain, and at first I'm like, this is, a, this is probably a bad decision. But then I was like, what, who am I kidding? And so I I did grab an umbrella, and I went out there too. But then we just walked around the park, and we're just like looking at puddles and just you know watching everything build up. They were dancing, they're laughing, they're like waddling like ducks and it was beautiful. And then so me, I guess being an adult, I don't, I don't know what it is, but I started questioning. I was like, how could we make this? How could we make this time better? It was like, we could go get in the Tahoe. We could listen to some music. And then so I started brainstorming of how I could make that time better. But then I started watching them and I was like, no, you know, this is the way that it's supposed to be. Like they're just carefree, dancing in the rain, enjoying every second of the rain. And so at that moment, I committed myself. I was like, I'm not worried about any other way that I can make this better. Like I'm going to commit to this moment right now. And the result was beautiful. It was happiness. Commitment to good things and others mostly result, most likely results in happiness. So what else comes into play when we're asking, how can I live my best life now? Community, that's just a percentage of how we can get that happiness. Here's evidence number two. its It really is more blessed to give than to receive. So one of my old buddies from college, he had a shirt that said, the one that dies with the most toys wins. And I was like, dude, that is the dumbest T-shirt I've ever seen. But he he's, he thought it was funny. He's like, "No, dude, it's true." The one who dies with the most toys. I was like, "No," but clearly we had different values. He valued things a lot more than what I did. The claim from the Bible: it is more blessed to give than to receive. It definitely goes against the grain of our individualized, you know, our success-focused mindset. But there's growing research that suggests that giving is good for us. So for example, volunteering is good for our mental and our physical health. Actively caring for others often gives if you care for someone it gives you greater physical and psychological benefits than the person that you're caring for. And this doesn't mean that you're going to that you won't miss out on things in caring for other people or putting other people first. If you follow Jesus, the sacrifices will be they're going to be real. But the truth is, I've tried the selfish way I think that we can all say that we've tried the selfish way, like to some extent. And when I'm selfish, and it might just be a week at a time, but I notice it, it makes me it makes me miserable. I become a di- completely different person whenever I'm selfish. I'm more anxious, I'm not as joyful and less fulfilled. God has designed us to operate a certain way, and his son came to serve and not to be served. So it's true that I'm happy when I give to others. Give to others of my time, my abilities, my attention, my love, my respect. Evidence number three, love of money disappoints. So we often think that money will make us happy. There's a 2016 survey of students, so 82.3% of these students checked, becoming rich has a very important goal. So that's pretty high up there. For people that are poor, having like a little bit more money, that that can help. But experts have discovered that choosing money over friends and family, that's a sure path to unhappiness. And so once again, we can find wisdom in the Bible for this. Paul calls the love of money a root of all kinds of evil. And that's 1 Timothy 6.10. Now, I want to point out that he doesn't say that money is the root of all kinds of evil. He says that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this doesn't mean that we shouldn't work hard to earn money. I look at it this way. So at the end of my life, if if I'm able to do this, if I'm like laying on my deathbed as an old man, the question that comes to my mind is most likely not going to be, did I make enough money in this lifetime? That will not be the question that goes through through my head. Instead, I will hope, you know, my question will be, I will hope that I spend all the time possible with my family, my friends, and like really soaked in that time. I will hope that I made a difference in their life so that they'll be able to share that with others. And I'm not going to think about money. I'm going to think about the way that I loved on others. And something that goes along with this, with the love of money, is our work. So I'm just kind of segueing into this, or what we choose to do for work. So that brings us to evidence number four. It's work works when it's a calling. So the Bible doesn't support the love of money, but it it doesn't call us to a leisurely life. Rather, it tells us a story of, you know, which humans are made to be in relationship with God and with each other and to pour ourselves into meaningful work. Something that I found interesting was in the time of Jesus, few people actually had the freedom to choose their profession like we do today. So if your son was a carpenter, he better enjoy working with wood because that's what he's going to be. Or if you were a son of a carpenter, you better enjoy working with wood. The Apostle Paul encouraged Christian slaves, so this was actually a significant proportion of the early church, that even as a slave, Their work could be a calling, and he encouraged them to put their full hearts into it. And this is out of Colossians 3, 23 through 24. He said, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. So as Christians, we're actually supposed to, our work should be worship to God. And I've seen this firsthand. I had a boss that, um, in commercial construction before this and that, that man I could never please. And no matter how hard I tried, it seemed like I was, that the things that I did were never good enough. And the beginning of that job, it used to really get at me, you know, and it would mess up some of my days and some of my weekends too. But then while I was working at that job, I stumbled upon, you know, upon that scripture. I began working for the Lord, and that's who I should have been working for, you know, the entire time. When you work for the approval of humans, you're going to be let down. But when you can say that you're doing your best for the glory of the Lord, that that is a calling. And then evidence number five, gratitude is good for us, So psychologists have discovered that people who choose to be grateful. So you, you keep a journal. This is like a grateful journal and you write down everything that you're thankful for every week. The people that do this, they're happier, they're healthier than those that don't. And the Bible tells us just that. So Paul, he went through some pretty crazy stuff in his lifetime. He was beaten. He was shipwrecked. He was mocked. He was laughed at. Um, and he's finally killed for following Jesus. And you might think that he he was resentful, but instead he tells Christians to rejoice always. He told them to rejoice always when he was in prison and give thanks for all circumstances <coughs> because God is really in control. I did a message on gratitude that was last semester. And when I really got down to it, like what I was most thankful for was second chances because I've been given second chances my entire life. And I thank thank God for those second chances. And I I incorporated that the scripture says that God will count us as righteous. So that Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. And I so wish that I'd been taught that when I was baptized or after I was baptized that somebody would sat me down and said that I was righteous and that they would explain that, that scripture to me. Don't get me wrong. You know, take notice of every single thing that you have your family, your friends, this church, our youth group, your personal gifts, food, water, home, all of that. But I think that righteousness bleeds into everything. There's so many outward factors that can, you know, that can control, that we can't control, but the one thing that we can control is our faith. Do you choose to believe in Jesus and that he made you righteous by faith? And if so, you will be grateful. Evidence number six, forgiveness is foundational. So one of Jesus' disciples, he asked this question, uh, how many times should we forgive someone? He asked the question, is it up to seven times? And Jesus replied, not seven times, but 77 times. That's Matthew 18, 21 through 22. He taught his followers to pray this way. He said, forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. And amazingly, even as he is nailed to the cross, Jesus prayed for the soldiers who were executing him. He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Jesus grounded that we must forgive others because we have been forgiven for so much more. And once again, this turns out to be good for us. So experts have found out that forgiveness is, it's good for our minds, good for our bodies. And this doesn't mean that God doesn't care when we suffer. And we're going to talk about that later, suffering in the semester. But it also doesn't mean that someone who abuses their power to hurt someone else should be able to keep that power. God is both loving and just And the Bible teaches us again and again that the vulnerable should be protected. But God wants us to remember that the final justice is in his hands. And then evidence number seven. This is the last one right here, guys. So self-control and perseverance help us thrive. Do you ever wonder or ask this question, am I smart enough? Am I talented enough? Or am I good looking enough to succeed in life? I know that I've asked that question. I've asked more the question of, am I smart enough? Now, I'm thinking that we all think this from time to time. But it turns out that something psychologists call grit, so this means sticking with the task that you care about for a long time, even when it gets hard, makes more difference in our long-term success than intelligence or talents or good looks, any of that. And we find the call to be gritty all throughout the Bible. Jesus said, following him was like walking a hard road. Peter just called Christians to have self-control and perseverance. And that song that I sang last week over y'all, that was from 2 Timothy 1.7. It says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline. And I believe this to be true. There's so much satisfaction in completing a job, even when It's difficult. And I think that this relates well with, you know, some of our most important relationships. There's some relationships that you must stay the course. And I'm not talking about all relationships, but some relationships are (laughs) worth fighting for. And I think that a good example of this is, you know, when somebody loses a loved one, you spending the time with them. A lot of times when that happens, there's nothing that you can say that's going to comfort them. But your presence alone is what makes a difference. And that's what provides the comfort, just you being there. And it's it's not the most comfortable at times to sit with somebody in that situation. But that's how relationships are. You know, they're messy. But you'll be glad that you did. You'll be glad that you sat with them during that time. And I believe that comfort that comes from the Holy Spirit that's inside of us. Rather than having us struggle alone, Jesus promised to send his followers a helper the Spirit of God, who comes and lives with us if we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior. And I think that's a good place to wrap this up. So what does fill us up? And it's easy to look at like sports or film stars and wish that we had their lives. But when stars open up, you actually discover that they're pretty lonely or they're feeling empty even after all that that success. And we started this chapter with wondering how can I live my best life now. So this is this is just the beginning. Uh, there's a lot of compelling information that shows that we're happy when we live our lives according to Scripture, and that we're designed in the image of God, and we're designed to be in relationship with Him as His children. And I'm I'm excited for the weeks to come. Thank you all. I okay. okay. you see.